Hi, I'm Michael Musangu, and this is the History Connection Podcast. to another episode of the History Connection podcast. My name is Michael Musangu, and I'm a junior at the University of Portland studying biology and minoring in history. Today, we are back after about a month off. I was in Europe, gallivanting around, traveling, um, hitting 10 countries, and it, it was a really epic trip. I hope you enjoyed seeing the little shorts that I was posting on YouTube of the different... Um, the different castles and different national monuments that we went to in different countries. I think my favorite was really the Ljubljana Castle in Slovenia. It was one of the most remarkable structures I had been, ever been to. It's also one of the oldest structures that I've ever set foot on. It was built in the 1300s. It, it was amazing. Today we're going to be sharing a book with you. Um, this is what I'm going to start doing in, mo- in my podcast episodes. I want to share a book with you, history lovers, those who really enjoy history literature. If you would like to learn a little more about different subjects in history, um, this will literally be a place I'm going to recommend a book and we're going to move on from there. So today I'm going to share a book called Leopold's Ghost, King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild. It is actually one of the most comprehensive reads I've ever had on the country of Congo. Now, being Congolese myself, I thought it was really amazing to be able to read something like this in so much depth. I've, I've, I've heard about, you know, what the Belgians did to the Congolese and how really the Congolese suffered a silent genocide at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, and no one really knew about it. But King Leopold's ghost really brought the facts to the table, and that's what made it so impressive. Uh, really goes through when Belgium started to really make the Congolese free state theirs, really became Leopold's backyard, and it really and it really led to all the exploitation that happened with the rubber and with um, rubber extraction, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was a really amazing book, so it um I hope you um, have a good time reading it. I think it's a really good um, recommendation and um, if you have any Uh, recommendations or any uh, books that you would also like to shout out let me know in the comments and I'll definitely let you know about them in the future I'll share them with the people so today we're going to be discussing one of my favorite historical episodes in history I, I believe ancient Ireland is one of the most fascinating things ever really Irish history is a very tumultuous one it's also a very tough one to handle because a lot of Irish history has to do with the Irish trying to find liberty as a people. Um, It's really trying to find their national voice as a people. So today I want to present my new question that will encompass really these next two episodes. And that question is, at what point does one nation get its independence and allows them to become the people who they are? Um, I think that's a very interesting question that we're going to be discussing because, I mean, I think what's interesting about the Irish people is that 
they were their own people, but because they were under English colonization, they weren't their own people. They were always being ostracized just for being Irish, for being countrymen, for being um, really rural farmers. And, and a lot of it led to their discrimination and a lot of their hardships that they went through. So today we're going to delve into this a little bit. I hope you're ready. If you have um, any pads or, or pen, pen and paper near you and pencils, it would be amazing for you to maybe take notes. There's a lot of information that we're going to be going through today, and I believe you'll enjoy this a lot. Uh, there's so much information. I can't really go through all of it in one episode, but what I'm going to do is that I'm going to take brief overviews to where you get the gist of the information that I'm trying to disseminate and share with you. So... Without further ado, let's go ahead and study Ireland from the ancient times all the way up to the Easter Rising of 1916. Alrighty, so firstly, with some basic history about ancient Ireland, we're going to be discussing really what makes Ireland into the spot that we're going to get to with the Easter Rising and eventually what leads to the Irish independence in 1923. So, Ireland itself, it was basically free from foreign invaders until about the year 795. The Celts were really the people who were really um, in, inhabiting, that pl inhabiting that part of uh, Ireland at the time and really that part of the British Isles. And it was basically free. Uh, they were living their own lives. Then the Romans came in in around 3rd and 4th centuries. They really started coming in and, 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 and taking over that part of uh, Europe. And that really was part of Romans, uh, the Roman rule, really part of the Roman kingdom for most of the time. But it was really in 795 now when we start to see Ireland losing their independence and their autonomy. This was when the Vikings came in and really they were free from large scale invasion. But when the Vikings came in, this changed a lot of the dynamic in Europe at the time because now we start to see the climax or rather, the rise of the Vikings, leading to their climax. Now, why this is important is because Charlemagne, who was a strong power at the time, in fact, he became the first Holy Roman Emperor. More on that later. We'll discuss that in future episodes. But Charlemagne, he was a Holy Roman Emperor. And in fact, he was dealing with the Frisian pirates. He, he broke them up. He was powerful. And he had really a large mobilized army a large standing army now the problem with this is that obviously the vikings were so successful because they had really slender uh, water dynamic type boats that could move quickly and the vikings had very very pointed attacks they loved the liturgical vessels and they loved food <laughs> so really churches and monasteries suffered most in the early attacks that the vikings went after because all they would really do is that they would hit coastal towns they would literally go and hit coastal towns and towns that are really close to where they can just drop off their boats walk in attack leave and zoom away on their boats this was hard for charlemagne to handle because when charlemagne tried to mobilize all his armies and all his units together it took about three months for them to actually mobilize. So Charlemagne really failed in this aspect because he didn't have a standing navy to really come in and, and, and answer the questions that the Vikings were giving to him, so to speak. <clears throat> so that said, we're going to stop here and go back really into what now led 
um, Ireland to who they are now. We all know the story of St. Patrick, and I think this is important because he was very integral in spreading Christianity in Ireland. Now, St. Patrick, he was actually born in England. He was actually taken away from England by Irish pirates, and they actually brought him to Ireland. He became a shepherd for about six years. He then found God. He then met God, and after meeting God, he eventually found a way to escape and return back home. Now, in fact, when he went back home in England, historians mostly do not know where his home was. All we know is that he was born in some rural town in England. Now, when he returned back home, he had a dream from God that he was supposed to return back to Ireland. Now, when he went back to Ireland, that's actually when he started to spread Christianity throughout all of Ireland. That's um, how St. Patrick became really known, um, really historically, is through his spreading of Christianity in Ireland at the time. Now, what makes this interesting is that Christianity was already in Southern Ireland. It was brought by really um, the, um, the traders that came from Gaul and, and, and Britain. Um, and merchants that were really coming to trade with the people in Ireland. And it was in Southern Ireland, really. But when, when St. Patrick came back to Ireland, he really started to spread Christianity. And that's what really propulsed the move of Christianity in Ireland. So now, moving on about 150 years, or no, even more than that, really from St. Patrick, I mean, that's about 500. But moving on from Charlemagne, we're moving on about 150 years now to the... Hastings invasion of 1066. Now, what makes the Hastings invasion very important historically is that we see that King Harold II of England was defeated by the invading Norman forces of William the Conqueror. Now, William the Conqueror was obviously Norman, and he's really what who became really the king of England, really. I mean, he really unified England and the British Isles and made them under his own kingdom, William the Conqueror. And now this is important because this is really where Ireland now starts to come into the story under another kingdom's rule. <clears throat> when the Black Death came also, moving on a couple hundred years again, <laughs> when the Black Death came in the um, mid-15th century, or really was the mid-14th century because it was the mid-1300s, but then it started coming back every 15 years after that period. So there was always a period of where the Black Death was coming about every 15 years. But when the Black Death came, most of um, the colonies were more affected, and they were more affected in the countryside. It wasn't really... Um, <clears throat> and we noticed that really it was the Irish rural farmers, countrymen that were being affected a lot. And it was really tough for them. And it really made things, it really killed a lot of people really during that time. I mean, we know that I think it was about, if I'm correct, numbers of, of about 25 million Europeans died during the Black Death. And Ireland was no exception to this rule. They suffered a lot due to really a lot of rural country folk. You know, there's not very many people there. And it also made life hard for them in that aspect. All right. But now let's get to where Ireland starts to come into fights for their own independence. To fight for who they are as a people. That's really the goal of this podcast episode today. 
So I'm going to discuss a little bit about the culture of Ireland um, and the type of people who were inhabiting the island at the time, or not really the island, but that land mass at the time. So the island, uh, so the uh, Ireland really consists of four different groups. So you have the Gaelics. These are like the Irish-speaking Irishmen. Gaelic is their language. You also have the Anglo-Irish ascendancy. Now these are the people who really are the rich Protestants that really um, have a desire to uh, really own everything. They owned all the land. They were the people who lived by primogeniture, or in other words, it was inherited land. You also had the Ulster Presbyterians, who were the North Irish. These were Protestant people. And you also had the English-speaking Roman Catholics. Now, the Roman Catholics, obviously, uh, the Catholics and the Protestants, as you're going to see, they had really a lot of contention in Ireland at the time, and it caused a lot of problems. But really, we start to see these problems come to head in the year of 1688, when we have the Glorious Revolution. This is one of my favorite topics in history, so I hope you enjoy it as well. Now, Catholic King James II, in the year 1688, or really 1689, 1688 to 1689, was replaced by Protestant Mary and William of Orange. Now, why this is important is because the English Parliament really didn't like Catholics. I mean, England was a Protestant country. I mean, they protested the Catholic Church, and the Church of England was really formed when King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, and and the Catholic Church wouldn't let him, so he formed his own church called the Church of England, which is really, which is really uh, Catholic in, um, in practice and everything, but they really uh, are separate from the Catholic Church in that aspect. So, really, the English really didn't like Catholics, and King James II was Catholic. So the English Parliament, not liking Catholics, wanted the Protestants to have the throne. So what did they do? They seized the throne. They literally took James off and decided to put a Protestant on the throne. Now, obviously, we see here that the English Parliament starts to have more and more power over the monarchy, and therefore the seeds for a constitutional monarchy, the seeds for democracy started to get planted. But let's understand, it wasn't that simple that the English Parliament just decided to just depose King James II and put Mary and William on the throne. It wasn't that simple. So, James II had a daughter, all right? Her name was Mary, all right? Mary was a Protestant while her father, James II, was Catholic. Now, James II now had a son. And when this son was born, his heir would be raised catholic now obviously an english uh an english royal um heirship to the throne right mary was born first obviously but if a male child was born he had automatic rights to the throne because you know having a son was the pride of the family it was to carry on the family line to carry on the family genes thus when his uh, son was born this heir would be raised catholic and obviously his birth changed the line of succession because women preceded, or men preceded men. Men preceded women, I should say. And with another Catholic in line for the throne, obviously Parliament was really mad. And no one was willing to back him up in this aspect. Now the problem is, is that he also had close ties with France. What is amazing about this is that, in fact, his cousin was the king 
of France. So you got to understand why literally the English parliament would be a little unsettled because now you have him being Catholic, his cousin being the king of France. And if his son now becomes heir to the throne, I mean, literally England and France were the strongest nations in the world at the time. So having another Catholic heir would just strengthen their alliances and literally they could take over the world by themselves. So what did they do? The English parliament and his peers, all their peers, basically decided to write to William of Orange, who was living in the Netherlands at the time, to invade England, which was a Protestant, uh, which was really, really Protestant, but it made the dynamic weird with James II as Catholic. So William of Orange was also Protestant, which is why everything seemed like it was going to work out. So William of Orange obviously accepted and decided to land on the coast of England. He eventually came with his troops, landed on the coast of England in 1688, and James was prepared to meet him with an army. James actually mobilized an army. William of Orange is like, I'm going to take you over. I'm going to become king. But the problem is, is that James II was actually deserted by his supporters. I mean, all his supporters deserted him. So he literally had no supporters left in England. So he decided to flee to France. And really, he fled to France for two reasons. He had concerns for his safety, obviously, for one. But he also had concerns about his health. His health was really declining at this point. So he uh, fled to France, where Louis XIV, his uh, cousin, was king. And basically, he lived his life in exile until 1701. Yes, I did mention Louis XIV, the son king of France, was his cousin. So that made things very tough. Now... We move on into 1689. William was now pressured by Parliament for, uh, to maintain ties with England, and this led to the union of William and Mary coming together. Obviously, now with them ascending the throne, the Parliament gets what they want, having a Protestant ruler, and this Protestant ruler would also, would also really do everything that was in the interest of the English Parliament at the time which was really representing the Protestant people of the nation. Now, the problem with this is that, yes, they did accept ascending to the throne. They also had to accept more restrictions on their power, which gave Parliament really a bunch of power over them. This was the greatest shift of monarchical power at the time because now they, with them ascending to the throne, they had to sign the Bill of Rights, which was um, published in 1689. I'll have that enclosed in the comments uh, below in our show notes as well. And it gave Parliament a bunch of power from ever allowing the monarchy to be Catholic again. That's what the Bill of Rights basically said. We are not allowing a Catholic monarch to ever ascend to the throne ever again. And this was really the first step towards England becoming a constitutional monarchy. Now, obviously, it was one of the first steps because we still see absolute monarchism um, really in the mid-18th century, obviously, with the American Revolution and everything going on with that fiasco. And King George III was really the one who was really behind that. So there was a lot of powers that were restricted from the monarchy with the Bill of Rights published in 1689. And... Ever since then, England to this day has never had a Catholic monarch. All their monarchs have been Protestant. So now, this is important. This is very important. Now, moving on, with a Protestant uh, pe uh, parliament and people 
in England, and you now have a bunch of Catholics in Ireland, I, you would obviously understand that it wouldn't be easy for them to live. There were a lot of Catholics in Ireland at the time, so they obviously did not have very good, um, very good, uh, how should I say it? They didn't have very good run-ins with each other. It just didn't end well for them. But we'll get there later. Now, the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. Now, we move on into this because King James II is back. He's like, you guys can take my, you guys think you took my throne, but I'm going to take it back. William and Mary, first of all, daughter, how could you abandon me? How could you betray me like this? <laughs> but King James II came up with this whole elaborate plan. He's going to come, take back the throne of England, and I'm going to become king because it's my rightful position. It's going to be hard to do it with, you know, the English Parliament. But he has his cousin, King Louis XIV, on his side. And that makes everything amazing because with Louis XIV, he has really one of the strongest militaries behind him on Earth. And he can literally achieve all his goals. So... He basically tries to take back England, but it really wasn't successful. Now, he had this alliance that he had in France, and his goal was to reach Ireland without confronting the Royal Navy in England. And the goal he had was smart. The easiest way to do this, mobilize all his units to get into Ireland in the middle of the winter. Why would you do this in the winter? Because in the winter, all the British Royal Navy will be in port. So there's no way they would act, they would be taking their winter break, essentially. So there's no way they would be able to come and do anything. So you would just hop into Ireland and then march all the way back into England and bang, take, our, uh, take England over and he gets his throne back. It was really genius. Now, this is where he made his grave mistake. They decided to avoid landing in Bantry Bay. Uh, and this was a problem because there was really... Um, they were trying to avoid a general. His name was General Hoosh, or rather Admiral Hoosh. And because he appeared, um, really, and they were all like, wait, aren't you supposed to be in port? It's winter. Like, why did you appear? So they decided to avoid landing in Bantry Bay. Now, this was a problem because by the time the fleet decided to land, there was a huge, crazy storm that started to destroy the fleet. And the... and. And because the storm was so fierce, they had to, it literally forced them to return to France. That It failed because if they had landed in Bantry Bay when scheduled, they, and, okay, General Hoosh was also there, or rather Admiral Hoosh. I don't know why I keep saying General. Admiral Hoosh was there. So because of his appearance, it literally forced them to remain out at sea, and they didn't want him to appear. So when he returned, so basically his plan failed, and he had to return to France because of that storm. And the mission failed because after the British government found out, because now the British government will find out, and when they found out, martial law was imposed. And the scapegoats of all this was, uh, was the Irish, really. Because once they realized that he was trying to use the Irish to go against them, to really, um, to really use Ireland as the launching point for his attack, for his motives to come and take over England again, really the English parliament and really the people did not take that very well. The Irish were viewed as nothing more than just a thorn in the back of the British, a pain in the side, as you would call it. 
Now, the Protestant ascendancy in the 18th century, right? We have most of the poor people. These are the peasants, the farmers, the working class. I mean, these are the people who really do the bulk of the production when it comes economically to Ireland. Okay. The rich have big mansions. They have their own parliament. And let's notice that less than 5% of the population owned literally everything. And this is what we call the Protestant ascendancy. Okay. These are the people who are really lords and, and dukes and all sorts of rich British families who basically own land in Ireland and run the parliament there. But they own literally everything, less than 5% of the population. To understand some of the things that, some of the different impositions that were pushed on the Irish at the time, you had the Church of Ireland, again, very Protestant. And there were a lot of Catholics in Ireland at the time, so there was a lot of clashing between the two religions. If you, if, um, you were Catholic, you still had to pay tithes to the Church of Ireland. And if you, and even if you didn't follow the Protestant religion, so that was already a thing. You had to pay tithes to the Church of Ireland. This was tough because literally now the Catholics who were paying tithes to their own church, they also had to pay tithes to the Church of Ireland. It was literally imposed. And obviously all the Protestants paid tithes to their own church. I mean, that's the church. But to, now it became a question of oppression on the Catholics in Ireland because no one liked the Catholics because of the history that they really had been having since really the, uh, the 16th century with, in the mid-1500s with King Henry VIII. Clergymen, doctors, army personnel, and government officials, they were all really controlling. These were the bulk of the people who really controlled Ireland. They really controlled everything. And with that, we had the institution of the penal laws. I will also put the penal laws into the show notes and um, description section because there's a lot of stuff I think you can look in there. They made multiple versions of penal laws. But basically, in short, the penal laws made it illegal for you to be Catholic in Ireland. Um, these laws were passed in mainly the 16th and 17th century, but the enforcement of these laws started to come to height in the mid-17th and 18th centuries. So it basically made you illegal to be Catholic. What do I mean by this? Basically, the Catholics were fined, okay, for having worship services. The penalties of having worship services as a Catholic in Ireland actually extended to death for Catholic priests that practiced ministry in Britain or in Ireland. So really being a Catholic in this time period was not a good idea because they were really separate from the Catholic Church. They were very desiring to be separate from the Catholic Church, and literally being Catholic, having the Catholic faith, would lead you to even death if you were not careful. Catholics could not vote, hold public office, own land, or bring items from Rome into Britain, and couldn't sell any Catholic items. You, you couldn't publish anything that was Catholic in nature. This was a tough thing for most Catholics in Ireland, and this... These ideologies, these uh, penal laws actually started to get largely ignored by the 18th and 19th centuries because there were laws, th these laws were basically nullified by James II, of course, because he was a Catholic monarch. So, obviously, this led 
um, really to what the Glorious Revolution was. It was actually the penal laws that were imposed before James II was king. When James II became king, uh, he basically nullified these penal laws and the nullification of these laws led to the Glorious Revolution because everyone didn't like that idea. The Roman Catholic Relief Aid Act and the Catholic um, Emancipation Act were some of these laws that I will also put in the show notes and description. These were some of the laws that James II put into motion, which eventually led to the Glorious Revolution. Now, moving on into the 18th century, Ireland is now in a very tough spot, all right? Catholics started to lose their religious tolerance with the Protestants, all right? The tolerance that the Protestants had with the Catholics, they started um, to really lose it um, because the Protestants really owned everything. In 1688, I'm going to give you some statistics here. 1688, 22% of the land held in Ireland was Catholic. In 1714, only 14% of the land was held by Catholics. By 1780, only 5% of land in Ireland was held by Catholics. And you ought to understand, this was a really tough thing because you have Catholics that want to, you know, live, have a job, work, and do all these things, but they could hardly do anything because the Protestant ascendancy was so strong, they would literally create laws to where the Catholics couldn't own anything. It was really tough. The penal laws prevented Catholics from buying land. It, it, it did everything to them. But that said, let's move on into now the 18th century, as I mentioned. But what was one of the key defining factors of the 18th century? It was the Industrial Revolution. By the 18th century, Dublin was the second largest city in the British Empire. In fact, Dublin was not an industrial city, but it was actually a government and administration city. Now, this is important because we're going to see this come to light in the 20th century with the English Easter Rising. Now, this was the place where all wealthy families maintained their social life. This, that's what Dublin was in the mid-18th century. This was the place to go for wealthy families. Dublin had terrible poverty, even though it was the place for the rich to be lavish. Dublin had terrible crime. The slums of Dublin were terrible. It was, it was horrible, horrible place to live in. If you were in poverty at the time, you were really impoverished. But if you also had money at the time, you were living large. I mean, it was normal to see parties and all these things happening. And down in the alleyway, a couple blocks down, you have people who hardly are getting enough to eat. The rates of poverty in Ireland at the time were horrendous and terrible. But we're going to now understand that while Dublin was more the administration area of Ireland, Belfast was the industrial city. This is where a lot of the Industrial Revolution started to really move. As we know, the Industrial Revolution really started in England. So with the Industrial Revolution, Belfast became the main city where most of production happened with steel production, etc., etc. And really, the Irish in this time period are constantly sucked into wars that the British and the French are ha having. For example, the French and Indian War. The Irish are like, 
why does this concern us? We are our own people. Why are you trying to, you know, force our men to go into the army to fight for you? <laughs> we are Irish. We are living our own lives. That's the type of thing that the Irish were really going through in this time period. We're going to continue on in just a moment after we take this short break. I want to use this time for you to just take a moment to take a break and we will also come back and now move into what leads into the Easter Rising of 1916. Alrighty, welcome back and let's continue on. So as I said before the break, um, Belfast really became the main industrial city of Ireland at the time and we now see that Ireland is constantly getting sucked into British wars for really everything um literally everything so what's amazing here is that now we see the rise of really irish nationalism and the call for irish independence we have people like patrick pierce who we're also going to discuss in greater detail in the next two in the next episodes who basically is saying that a gun is the only way to independence all right now they're starting to realize Okay, we cannot sit here and be passive anymore. We need to fight for our independence. We need to fight for who we are as an Irish people. We also see other people like Wolf Tone. Um, yeah, what an interesting name. Wolf. Wolf. I, I don't ask. But anyways, his name was Wolf Tone. And <clears throat> he was it really a product of the French Revolution, all right? And the French Revolution, as we know, we discussed with Napoleon in the last three episodes that um, <clears throat> the French really abolished their monarchy um, with the idea of becoming independent, having a democracy inspired by the American Revolution for independence. And of course, now America's now an independent nation. America's is is doing great for themselves i mean they're figuring things out wolf tone now sees the french revolution and now he goes to france and basically asks them hey can you invade ireland so you can have ireland under your control because we want to be free like you are the people in ireland are starting to notice that they are really nothing they're really not that much help to the British. They're just a thorn in their side. So they really are starting to now see these calls for really personal independence and becoming an independent nation. Now, Wolftone takes the army. I don't understand how, but somehow France agreed to this. And he takes the army, invades the British army, and really... It didn't work out very well because by 1801, Ireland, which had their own parliament, which was run by the Protestant ascendancy, in 1801, the Act of the Union dissolved the Irish parliament and made Ireland now become a part of the UK. Before, it was really just a country, they were really their own nation. But England was really the one who was running them. They viewed Ireland as their little brother, so to speak. All right. But now with the Act of the Union, 
England being one of the strongest nations at the time, of course, behind France. England now unites Ireland. And now it becomes really hard for the Irish because really now they're all under British rule. They still have this desire to become free. They want to be their own nation, but they're constantly drawn into wars and drawn into conflicts of other countries. What was good, I, I would say what was good about this whole situation is that the Catholics were allowed to vote, unlike in the Protestant ascendancy, when the Protestant ascendancy had their own parliament in Ireland. The British, or I'm sorry, the Irish Catholics were allowed to vote. I think that was a good outcome of the Act of the Union. That said, they did that because the British obviously didn't want the Catholics in Ireland to side with the French because if they did, then the French would literally fight with the British for the independence or for the independence from Britain rather to not be uni unified because I mean the British because the Irish Catholics really were not surviving it, it was a tough time for them as we discussed it, they weren't getting any of the basic liberties that you know France was fighting for that America was fighting for life liberty pursuit of happiness equality as as um, the French motto is liberty equality and, and brotherhood so, France couldn't work with Ireland as much as they wanted to because they were fearing going into war with Britain. Now, obviously, they were fearing this for obvious reasons. I mean, France themselves, they were in a lot of political ruin, I would say. And I say a lot of political ruin because, I mean, they were going through the French Revolution. They were coming out of that era. They were coming out of that issue. We also have um, literally... France in a lot of debt. <laughs> they literally have so much debt. They can't do anything. Then you have the British. All right. The British are strong. They're also going through hardships. They just broke up with the American colonies. America's now a, a powerful nation or becoming. No, they became their own country. I wouldn't say a powerful nation. It was really in the War of 1812 that America now plants themselves as, hey, we, ha we can be independent. We can do our own thing. And you got to respect that. So, with that, now moving on into the mid-19th century, or um, not mid-19th century, maybe the 19th century, really. <clears throat> After this period, the Irish created the Fenians. Now, the Fenians were essentially a terrorist group. These were a secret, this was a secret Irish society founded in Ireland. This was founded in the mid-19th uh, century. This was a brotherhood. Now, why is this important? Because the Fenians were basically extremists for home rule. Home rule doesn't mean, and this is one of the definitions I do want to define right now. Home rule does not mean independence, being an independent country. Home rule means having their own parliament. In other words, with the Act of the Union going into effect in January of 1801, Ireland and Britain were united. Okay. So they had one parliament. So that means if the Irish had problems, 
they would not be able to be properly represented because first of all, the English disdained. They had a disdain for the Irish. They did not like the Irish. I never understood why, to be honest. But they really had a disdain for the Irish. So therefore, with this, now you have the Fenians who are like, "Uh uh-uh, we want home rule. We want to have our own parliament because our own parliament can answer to the problems that we, the people of Ireland, have. What do the British know? They're all the way in London. They're not here in Dublin seeing the poverty we have. They don't see the poverty, the issues we're going through. And you're going to see with the Act of the Union, you're going to see it's going to become worse. There are things in Ireland that we're going to discuss, namely the potato famine in the mid-19th century, that really shows why home rule was really an idea that started to develop um, during that time period. Now, the Fenians obviously show up in the mid-19th centuries after the potato famine era. So we're going to see this start to come into play. So one more note on the Act of the Union. With the Act of the Union coming to effect in January 1st, 1801, this kept the, um, the unity of Britain and Ireland being one nation from 1801 until January, uh, or uh, from 1801 until 1923, when Northern Ireland separates from Britain, or no, not Northern Ireland. The Republic of Ireland separates from Northern Ireland to become uh, their own nation, and Northern Ireland is like, I want to remain with Britain. Now. This happens in 1923, but essentially, I will describe this a little later in more detail, Northern Ireland were the six northern Ulster counties that wanted to remain part of England. They're like, we like monarchy. We like having you guys, uh, you Britain as our monarch. (laughs) We're going to be our own thing. The Republic of Ireland is like, we want to be independent. Yeah, we're going to be independent. So that's what we're going to do. So they separated. Northern Ireland is like, okay, fine. We're going to remain with England. So after 1923, now it's the Republic, or I should not say the Republic, the Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland ever since 1923. And now the Republic of Ireland is their own nation. Alrighty. Now, in the mid-19th century, we have what is called the Irish Potato Famine. This is probably one of the worst famines that happened in the time period because really what happened is a fungus spread through the land all right this fungus spread through the land and led to the failure of about 25 i I should say 25 to 30 percent of the potato crop that year now normally you know most people wouldn't you know complain you know but in ireland Potato was really the main source of food that they ate. Potatoes were literally the main source of how they made most of their food dishes. And thus, when the potato crop failed, it really caused a lot of issues in 1846. Now, let's understand a little bit of the rural situation here in Ireland so we can understand a little more of the implications of the Irish potato famine. Now, the rural situation of the Irish people that lived on the properties of the landlords, all right, 
they never made enough to live on, all right? They were treated very poorly. The landlords, mainly the Protestant ascendancy, they owned everything. And the poor Irish people who lived in rural Ireland didn't make enough to live on. They were barely making ends meet. When the Irish potato famine happened, it really destroyed Ireland. It destroyed the rural people. It destroyed the people who were in poverty. And this is actually what forced a lot of Irish people to leave Ireland and to immigrate to the United States. This was actually one of the most, it was one of the largest catastrophes of the modern era that I've ever seen. Pea infestans, as I mentioned, was a fungus that destroyed the potato crop that year. And really with the advent of the Irish potato famine, we have a British statesman named Robert Peel, who basically set up a relief commission to bring corn from the U.S. to feed the Irish people. I mean, you know, they're like, okay, there's a famine. Okay, let's, you know, try and do something, you know. They're not going to just sit there and act as if, you know, hey, we're not going to do anything. They were going to try and do something. So they brought corn. The problem is, when they brought corn, bringing corn didn't work at first because most of the people in Ireland do not cook with corn. They cook with potatoes. They know potatoes. They farm potatoes. That was a lot of their production in Ireland, potatoes. So when corn was brought, they're like, wait, how do you cook with that? How do you, how do you cook with potatoes? We don't know how that works. So a government pamphlet on how to cook with corn literally led to more people being able to cook with corn and it kind of abated a lot of the issues that were going on in the famine. That said, it didn't work for the whole time. It didn't solve the situation. It, it stifled a lot of symptoms, but it didn't solve the whole situation. A public work system was put in place but the problem with that is that it was very cumbersome and it did not work very well. It failed, really. There was also the Temporary Relief of the Destitute Persons Act, which was set up in 1847. Mind you, the famine started in 1846. In 1847, they set up the Destitute Persons Act. This basically allowed soup kitchens to be set up to help feed the hungry. And... This, it kind of worked, you know, hungry were getting fed. But the problem is, is by the time the British government really started to set up things that would really help, a lot of people, and mainly the people who were in poverty, had already died of diseases like typhus, dysentery, hunger, edema, scurvy. In fact, there were 10 different acts that were put into motion during the famine years by the Br British government. But by the time the but by the time there was adequate involvement of the British in the Irish famine, a lot of these diseases, a lot of these issues were exacerbated by the starvation that was caused by the lack of food. And by September 1847, the British government literally said, Okay, we declare that the famine is over. And with declaring the famine over, the burden of literally relief was left to the Irish taxpayers. 
the people who paid Irish property taxes. Now, these are the Protestant ascendancy. And obviously, you realize the Protestant ascendancy do not like most of the Irish Catholics. So, obviously, they were not going to do very much to mitigate the burden of relief. This was a really catastrophic thing because the British government just suddenly says, okay, the famine's over now. All right, we're going to move on. But again, let's mind you. The British viewed Ireland as a thorn in their side. And thus, part of me wonders if the blame of the response of the British government in the Irish famine was something that can be placed on the British. Most historians would not agree. Some can say that it, um, the blame, really, it's hard to place. But I ask you to look at the evidence. I'm going to put a lot of these, um, uh, I'm going to put a, uh, some of these Irish potato famine acts that the British government laid out in 1846 and 1847 through 1852 and really place them at your, um, in your hands. Look at the evidence and make your own conclusions. That's one of these, that's one of the things that I really want to present with this podcast. I don't want to paint a picture to where you are convinced by what I have to say. I want you to look at the evidence yourself. Look at the historical documents. Because that's what history is. History is not the events that happened in the past. History is what we today make of the events of the past. That is what history is. But if we do not know our history, we cannot make an advancement towards our future. Now, continuing on with the potato famine, with, there were good grain crops that followed. There were good crops that followed. But of course, it wasn't enough to help the poor, which suffered the most, right? It, it helped mainly those who were upper middle class and middle class. But the poor who were living in the slums, they, they, they suffered. They died of these basic diseases that were eventually solved with vaccines. But at the time, you know, there weren't very, there weren't very many vaccines at the time. So they suffered. Now, I'm going to give you some more numbers on the amount of Irish population, just to help you understand a little bit of how bad, how bad the Irish population suffered and how bad the population is to today ever since that time period. Between 1846 and 1851, 1.2 million Irish people left the island to go to other places like America. In fact, this was when we had a lot of influx of Irish people to America because of the famine. About 1 million people were believed to have died from the famine. Ireland's current population is 5.1 million in 2022. Before the famine, the population of Ireland was 8.175 million. We also must note, Ireland itself is now split into Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. The numbers I'm giving you with 5.1 million people is the numbers for the Republic of Ireland. Now, if we were to combine both populations, that's also a good question. I'll have to take a look at that later on. 
Now, the crops that were recovered, um, by the time the famine, the famine really ended by 1852. That's really when Ireland started to bounce back. They recovered in 1852, the crops, most of them recovered in 1852. Potatoes were like, okay, we're back. By the time this happened, the damage was already done. Ireland had already lost 1 million people to this famine. It was tough. And the Irish never really recovered population-wise ever since, with most of the Irish population moving to America. So now, <clears throat> we're going to now discuss, discuss a little bit about the British parliamentary system. Why this is important is because you want to understand the British parliamentary system in order to understand a lot of the politics that were going on during the Easter Rising that will happen in 1916, but furthermore, from the Easter Rising period into 1923, when the Irish Republic gained their independence. All right. From the Irish potato famine, now we have the rise of the Fenians, as I mentioned a, a bit ago in the episode. And now they're calling for home rule. We want our own parliament. But after this period, it became more than we want our own parliament. It became we want our own country. We want to be liberated from England. Now, that doesn't come for a while, but I'm going to describe this a little later. Let's first describe a bit of the political scene in England at the time in the British Parliament. So there were two major political parties in England. All right. You had the Tories and you had the Whigs. The Tories were the conservatives. All right. These are the, cons the political conservatives. The Tories were pro-monarchy, pro-military, pro-land estates, high tariffs um, on, on literally importation, etc., etc. Importation and exportation, etc. The liberals were the pro-trades people, merchants, uh, tariffs to be low on imports and exports. There were also the Irish nationalists. These were the people who really held the balance of power in Parliament because they, all they wanted was home rule. Now, noticing that the nation, Irish nationalists had a lot of power in Parliament, you can understand that they would want to use these powers for their own good, obviously. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, in British Parliament, really, we had this design. This is the current design that British Parliament actually has today. The monarch is the head of the government. Then, or I should not say the monarch is the head of the government. I should say the monarch is the head of the state. They're really the figurehead that holds the people together. They are the ones who really cause a lot of, how do I say? They lift the spirits of the people. They unite them in times of trouble. The prime minister is the head of the government. All right. And then you now have the parliamentary system itself. You have the House of Lords and the House of Commons. In America, this is analogous to our Congress on Capitol Hill with the Senate and the House of Representatives. The House of Lords are also called the Peers, and you also have the House of Commons, which is called the MPs. To get into this system, the House of Commons, you must, one, be a noble, two, 
it was a system run by primogeniture. Again, as I mentioned before, primogeniture is this idea of inheritance. If you had a father that had a, an, a hereditary title, if you had a high title, you get in. Three, if you do a job really well with the British government or, or head of state, you can also get in. Members in the House of Lords could not vote in the general election or sit in the House of Commons. Getting in the House of Commons, you really had to meet these three ideas of being a noble, having good primogeniture status, and also doing a job really well in British politics. Members in the House of Lords could not vote in general elections, and thus, they couldn't also sit in the House of Commons. So thus, when it came to all these decisions regarding Ireland, you're going to see how this plays out politically. There was also a cabinet um, with the prime minister who runs the government, and there were other offices, like Chancellor of the Acheque, Home Secretary, Foreign, Foreign Secretary, etc., etc. And the elections to Parliament were every five years. Now, why this is important is because now, by the late 19th century, you have major players like William Gladstone, who was the leader of the Liberal Party. <clears throat> In other words, he was the leader of the Whigs. Queen Victoria asked him to form a government. He was the Prime Minister of the time, William Gladstone. And, he is, and basically what he did is that in forming this new government, he disassembled the Anglican Church of Ireland and in the Land Act of 1870, he, these are some of the acts I'm going to read to you that he did. I will also post some of these in our. I will also post some of these in the show notes and in description. Along with assembling the church of, disassembling the Church of England in the Land Act of 1870, he basically allowed for tenants to be compensated for improvements made to their holdings that were in Ireland. All right. So now there's almost an incentive to holding land in Ireland. And it was especially an incentive for those who were part of the ascendancy. Those who were the small population of those who owned everything. It was now an incentive to own stuff. In 1884, Gladstone gave the vote to all male heads of households. That includes those not who were Catholic. That's the best part about this. Even if you're a Catholic, now you have a vote. All right. And the key here is that he supported the first Home Rule Bill. He supported the idea of Ireland having their own parliament. He supported Ireland having their own legislative party to govern their own domestic issues. That's the best part about this. Now, with the implementation of Home Rule, the idea of Home Rule. Now, this bill obviously didn't pass quite yet, but... The idea was enough to revive Irish culture. And when I mean the revival of Irish culture, let me try and describe a little bit for you. The Irish, again, most of them, most of the rural farmers and, and all these people who live in the countryside, they speak Gaelic. But most of that culture of the Irish people was lost when they became part of the United Kingdom. Through the Act of the Union. 
But some of the main people who were part of this revival of the Irish culture were people like Douglas Hyde. He was a main proponent of the revival of the Irish culture. The problem is that many viewed the Irish language at the time as a badge of poverty. So Douglas Hyde is like, I am going to basically make people realize it is not a badge of poverty to speak Irish. This is our language. Irish Gaelic is our language. His goal was to distinguish the Irish culture. So he worked with people like Ewan McNeil and, uh, to create the Gaelic League in 1893. In towns where the speaking of Gaelic as a language died out. Basically, the Gaelic League, the Gaelic League had many of these different branches. And these different branches basically... It was basically like a club with many different chapters in different cities. And basically, this actually revived the speaking of the Irish language. And it was supposed to be a non-political, non-denominational thing. The main goal was simple. Just for people to have their own language. For people to revive that culture. For people to realize it's not a badge of poverty to speak Irish. This started to pick up a lot of steam at the end of the 19th century. And leading into the 20th century, we now start to see a lot of challenges. Because now we have the German naval challenges. Germany is now starting to become a really strong power at the time. Germany is becoming a really strong power. And this is starting to become interesting because Ireland is like, oh, maybe we can use them, you know, to our own, uh, you know, for our own purposes. We're going to see that a little bit later. Economically. In Ireland, uh, with a lot of poverty being widespread, you now have the workers starting to pressure for higher wages and benefits because of that poverty. They're like, we need more wa We need higher wages. We cannot live on what you're giving us. Socially, you have the decline of the aristocracy. The Protestant ascendancy started to die out. You, you started to see that a lot of large aristocrats with a lot of money, hereditary value, a lot of owning businesses and land started to die out. Women pressured for opportunities of equality. And politically, it was unstable if you left it evenly balanced with the Whigs and the Tories. So who were the people that held the balance of power? It was the Irish, the Irish nationalists that were in parliament. So they could also now manipulate this to their own will because they're like, hey, huh. All right, so if you want certain things, we hold the balance. So now you have the Whigs and the Tories starting to lobby to the Irish to give them, to get them to follow their agendas. And the Irish are like, we'll do it. As you'll start to see later, they're going to say, we'll do it if you give us home rule. We'll do it if you give us these things. And that's when the Irish start to realize they can start to play the British Parliament to their own games. All right, we start to see a lot of people rise up that are now, uh, that are on the other side, that are against home rule. These people, for example, like Edward Carson, he, in 1910, was elected the parliamentary leader of the Ulster Unionists. The Ulster Unionists, again, Ulster is basically a huge province in, in Northern Ireland, all right. Um, at the time when Ireland was unified, it was a huge province in Ireland, all right? 
but it's a it's a province full of different of many counties and basically edward carson is like we do not want home rule we want to be united okay we do not want home rule we like england we're gonna keep our parliament there it's fine so when um when prime minister herbert asquith started to prepare a home rule bill Carson, Edward Carson, tried to start a resistance. And obviously, this didn't turn out well because what happened is now in 1912, the Ulster people basically signed a covenant that said, or no, no, no. They signed a covenant that said, we are not going to be a proponent for home rule. And so they formed the Ulster Volunteer Force. And in response the national volunteers who were on the home rule side also formed. Now, in 1913, we see an amendment that was made by Carson, all right, to exclude the nine counties of Ulster from the idea of home rule. Okay? And with that, now you have John Redmond, who was also another parliamentary member, another parliament member, I should say, who led the Irish Parliamentary Party. And he's like, I don't want Ulster to be excluded. If Ireland gets home rule, we all need to be united. Carson's like, no, but we like England. We like England. So we're not going to be a part of it. If you guys want to go ahead, but leave Ulster out. John Redmond's like, no, we need to keep together. So now we have, even now the Irish people, who are having, who are not even united in their own goals and their own missions. They all wanted to have some essence of freedom. But certain people were against that. In 1913, mid-1913, we now have the Dublin lockout that occurs when a bunch of employees basically are, are striking against employers for better wages and working conditions. And this is important because with the Dublin lockout, people are starting to realize how important of a situation this is now becoming. By 1914, Herbert Asquith succeeds in convincing, literally, he convinces um, John Redmond to go ahead with the idea of leaving Ulster out and just go ahead with keeping the part of Ireland without Ulster to have home rule. 1914, he worked with the mass importation of 24,600 rifles from Germany. And a party then rose up under the direction of Arthur Griffith. Arthur Griffith was really a... If I'm correct, Arthur Griffith was a journalist. He was working in South Africa. He went back into England. He was a journalist. And he didn't go back to England. I'm sorry. He went back to Dublin. And while he was writing, he formed a party called the Sinn Féin Party, based on a series of events that was happening in Hungary. When Hungary, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, became when Hungary essentially became in equal with Austria. Griffith wrote about it in his papers and he called them Sinn Féin. 
And Sinn Féin is the Irish Gaelic motto for self-reliance. And Griffith basically is like, hey, if Austria had to allow Hungary to become co-equal with them, why can't Ireland become co-equal with England? And everyone is starting to be like, huh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they like that idea. In fact, in fact, the faction didn't last very long. It actually died when John Redmond started working more with the idea of home rule. So this faction actually died out very quick, the Sinn Féin party. They tried to become a political party that tried to have a lot of, fa um, of ground, but it didn't work out very well. But with the rise of the faction of, of Sinn Féin, we have other Irish revolutionaries, which we'll definitely discuss next episode as we start to get to the Easter Rising with people like Maud Gawne and Constance Gore Booth to start to rally together with radical Irish nationalists that wanted to be separate from England. Okay, that's a whole different thing. Okay, these are radical Irish um, nationalists. Sinn Féin essentially was then replaced by the United Irishman paper, which was actually Sinn Féin was also a paper which Arthur Griffith started, but they then became the Sinn Féin party, right, with that idea. It is essentially called on Irish, um, Irish members of parliament to undermine British rule and to abstain from voting in Westminster. And that really it, it was a tough thing because i don't think it really worked out very well as we're going to see here in a moment back to herbert asquith all right he is important here because now with introducing the third home rule bill in 1912 remember gladstone it gladstone he instigated and instituted rather the first home rule bill didn't work Another prime minister tried a second home rule bill, didn't work. Herbert Asquith institutes the third home rule bill. And he promised home rule if the Irish parties would support the Whigs. Because the Whigs, the Tories again, like I said, they were very evenly balanced in parliament. Yet the Whigs had a little more power. But if the Tories could convince them to vote against it, they wouldn't get the Home Rule Bill. But if the Whigs could get the Irish Nationalists to vote against the Tories, they would allow them the Home Rule Bill. So he basically made a proposition. Vote with us for Home Rule. Vote with us on our thing, on our plans and agendas. We'll give you Home Rule. The Irish said, of course we're going to give you Home Of course we're going to do that. We want Home Rule. And he passed the Parliamentary Act in 1911. Now, why is this important? This Parliamentary Act in 1911 basically said, Lords, you cannot veto bills for more than two years in a row. So in 1911, from 1911 to 1913, they vetoed Home Rule. But in 1914, you couldn't veto Home Rule anymore because you, you couldn't veto bills for more than two years in a row. Thus, they had to they had to be forced to vote with it. This caused a lot of issues, as you can imagine, because now you have a constitutional crisis where liberals, uh, the Whigs, would pass bills in the House of Commons, and the House of Commons would obviously shoot things down. 
But when the third home rule bill came into action in 1914, Asquith is like, don't worry. We're going to get home rule started here. But World War I happens in 1914 in August. Asquith is like, World War I will be over by Christmas. We'll instigate, we'll make sure home rule is instigated after Christmas. All that, that will be fine. And now England is fighting a war with Germany and Austria-Hungary against France and Russia. And Asquith is like, hey, I mean, literally everyone thought World War I would be over by Christmas. And boy, were they wrong. It lasted four years. <laughs> so they really didn't realize the expanse of this issue. And World War I started, obviously, with the events that surrounded the shooting or the assassination of the um, of Duke uh, Franz Ferdinand when he was in Sarajevo. So with that, we're going to stop here today and we will be back in two weeks to discuss the ending of really what is the most interesting historical um, discussion around the Irish people and really what brought them into independence as a, their own country. With this, Ireland now has to wait for home rule for another four years. And the Irish people were starting to get annoyed with this. And this is actually what led to the Easter Rising, as we will see next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope to bring you more in the next few weeks, as we do have a lot of interesting episodes that I am definitely excited to bring forward. If you don't know your history, you don't know your future. So I hope that you take time to look at these documents and understand how all this plays in to what we will discuss next time with the Irish um, Easter Rising and Irish independence in 1923, where you essentially have Catholics fighting against Catholics, as you'll see, for independence. It's very, very sad story, but it's what makes Ireland into what Ireland is today. In fact, I didn't know a lot of this information before I studied it. I didn't know anything about Ireland before I studied it, so I hope this is helpful to you in understanding a little more about our world and becoming a global citizen in the things that this world and different countries and different nations have gone through. Anyways, I'm Michael Musangi. Thanks for being on. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. See you next time.